Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at this new book and we ask you to guide and lead and show us what you would want us to see through, through this scripture. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Timothy, yep. We're going to be going through second, the book of Second Timothy. Uh, so this would be our introduction to Second Timothy. Second uh, Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul. And it was written to Timothy primarily. It's one of three pastoral epistle letters. Being the three pastoral letters are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And this is uh, the story that we have. It was written from Rome. We don't quite know where Timothy was at that time. Most people believe that Timothy had been sent away by Paul at, at some time between the first imprisonment and his second imprisonment in Rome. And if you're not familiar with that, when Paul was first arrested, he was basically placed under house arrest. He could not leave the house, but all kinds of people went to him. Uh, in the second, he was released for a very short period of time, and then he was rearrested. And the second time, he was put under close arrest under, under prison. That is when he was chained to Roman guards and actually evangelized the Roman guards. Uh, so that was this that particular time. During the second imprisonment, which is what was happening during Timothy, most everybody abandoned him. They didn't want to have anything to do with him because you know, he was on a death sentence. So nobody wanted to be admitting that they knew him and, and being associated with him. So nobody came in to, to see him. Uh, one of the big themes of this of the second Timothy is Paul expressing how discouraged he was because nobody was with him and everybody had abandoned him. He is encouraging Timothy, please come as soon as you can to, to be with me. And he's going to say it in several places. Everybody else has abandoned me. I need you. I need you back here. And so this is the huge story behind this. Um, and we see this loneliness. He's encouraging Timothy to be bold and courageous. Uh, to, to uh, not and do and do his activities for God without shame and without and encouragement of that. So we have this all going on in this letter. The letter is broken up in four parts that actually match the chapters primarily. First part is his greeting and exhortations to to Timothy. The second part is his counsel to his young to a young young pastor. Uh, the third part is his prediction of apostasy and corruptions. And then the fourth part is his final charges and appeal and his benediction. So this is where we're going to see all of this come, come down. And this letter is primarily a letter to servants of God and saying this is how you should behave. This is how you are to, to act. Primarily pastors. If anybody is in school to learn to be a pastor, one of the sets of books that they're going to learn, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, because those ones are very clear on this is the way you should be as a teacher, but they are applicable to all Christians. So we're going to get started here on verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, Grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of you in, in my prayers day and night, greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears that I may be fulfilled, may, may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in you that that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, I am, and I am persuaded that in you also. Wherefore, I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God, which is in you by the putting on of hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not, be not you therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be you partakers of the affliction of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us 
in Christ Jesus before the world began. I'm going to finish the sentence even though I don't think I'm going to get there. But it is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereupon I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. All right. So we have a very clear distinction on who's, who's sending this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, apostle means a sent out one with authority. It's not just somebody who's sent out, but somebody who's sent with authority. Now, this gets into great debates. There's, there's people who will divide the apostles into two groups, the disciples and Paul and anybody else who's a follower of Jesus, because there are many of them are called apostles, but not at the same level that most people think. I believe that apostleship is a call of God, all right, and that they can be, there can be apostles. I do not believe that as many people are apostles today as who say they are. Uh, there's many churches that have apostles in them. And I'm going, I don't know that you're an apostle. You don't seem to have any kind of authority or, or anything when I listen to them. Now, when you say Well, God has given authority. And so God gave the apostles the authority. God gives the apostles the authority. And I will agree that there are very few apostles. You know, and I've been to churches where they call their head pastors apostles, and I'm going, no, I don't think so. You're not, you don't have the authority of apostle. You don't speak with that kind of authority. Many of the prophets would have been considered type of apostles. To be an, a prophet, you spoke with spoke God's word with authority. And Paul is giving this, I am an apostle. Now there are another group of people say that you can't be an apostle unless you saw Jesus. Well, I've got to buy that on one side. Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus and probably saw him on, on the desert on, uh, uh, after his conversion. So it is possible. But if Paul could see him, then other people could be taught, directly taught to him. So this is where we get into a lot of dissent on what exactly an apostle is, but Paul was definitely an apostle. He wrote most of the New Testament and made with scripture. But he said that he's an apostle by the will of God, the desires and idea of God. He was not an apostle because others thought he was an apostle. He was not an apostle because he said he was an apostle. He said, I'm an apostle because God wants it that way. It's his will, his wish, his purpose. And this is something that everybody needs to be aware of at times is, what is the will of God in your life? You know, I know that I am called to be a pastor teacher. That's very clear to me. You know, some people are called to be an evangelist. Um, Royce, who visited us today, he's an evangelist. And it's, it is fun to watch him out at the prison because he's always given the gospel to people. Uh, and probably one day will lose his job because of how bold and out, out, outgoing he is with the gospel message. Uh, there are people who their calling is to just be helpers. They just love to help. Help. Help people. Uh, there are people who are called to, to be givers. You know, they will just give and give and give. And you know, what is your calling before God and his will before you is something that you have to spend time getting to know God and asking him, what is it that I am called to do? And I think it's very important for us to understand our calling. Because you know, so if we don't understand our calling, we don't know how to serve God. <laughs> Now, if I'm serving God in, you know, however, in whatever way I want, and not in my calling, then I'm not truly serving. How do I find my calling? Some of it is I, get, I just try different things out. You know, keep trying it until I find what it is that I'm good at. You know, because I've grown up in the church. I have tried lots of things that I'm not very good at. And I found teaching has been my, when I keep coming back to you, every time I turn around, I come back to teaching and preaching, uh, but we just keep trying things. 
And when we try them, we try them long enough to actually try them. I've had people go, well, I tried it once. Well, give it a little bit of time. How many things could you do the first time you learned how to do it? And I thought, you know, the ball player or something, I go, how well could you catch the ball the first time that you played ball? How well could you hit the ball the first time you played? Give it enough time to actually find out if, it's, if you have some skills in that. And so we look at this and he says, I am called an apostle by the will of God according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. And I thought this was very in interesting. The promise of life. What is our strength in our Christian walk? Is it my faith and my feelings that keep me moving in Christ's walk or my, the no knowledge of God and the promises? For me, it is his knowledge of God and his promises. Right? Because my faith is going to waver. My emotions are going to waver. I can tell you there have been times in my life when I did not feel saved. But I looked at the scripture and said, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. There is no other way. I don't care what I feel. And this is what's important. Paul said, I'm here by the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. And this is very important. We are based in our life with God on the facts of the word. And this is the thing that I have with problems with people going, well, you just claim it, name it and claim it, and God's going to give it to you. That's faith. No, that is actually being presumptuous more often than not. Now, there are times when we just say, God, I'm stepping out in faith, and I'm going to see if you're going to move on it. And this is very important. There are times when we're going to do things that make no sense whatsoever to the flesh. You know, and just go forward. And God says, I want you to do this. And God don't have enough money, don't have enough time. And God says, do it. And there's times when you're doing that and you're trusting in him. But when the trials come, everything comes down to what does God say? This is why I say it over and over, but Romans 8.28 is one of my favorite verses because no matter what comes my way, I know that God has a plan with it. And I can hold on to that plan no matter how I feel. And there have been many times when I've come out to God and said, God, I don't understand this at all. I don't understand how this can be good. But you've promised that something good will come out of it. So I'm going to hold on to that because you are God. God, I don't feel like I'm saved. I feel like I've been a terrible, miserable person and don't deserve anything. And he goes, you're absolutely right. You don't deserve it as a gift of grace. And it's yours. And we need to understand these things to be able to hold on to the promises of God, even when everything in us says there's nothing going on. You know, uh, because we don't deserve anything that comes our way. All we deserve is hell. And God says, here is my God, my gracious gift that I'm giving you. And here Paul's saying, I'm an apostle by the promise of life. And then he goes to Timothy, my dearly beloved son. Now, in this case, Timothy was not his son, but he treated Timothy as his son. Timothy's mother, as we're told in this scripture, is Eunice. And we told in another place that his father was a Greek man. So he has a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And Paul takes him under his arm when he gets saved and says, I'm going to treat you like my son. I'm going to, you're going to be my son. You're going to travel with me. You're going to, you're going to learn, you know, learn, learn to use the skills that God has given you. So he brought him under his wing. Now, there are those of us who have people that, we, that are so close to us that we consider them sons and daughters and everything, uh, and we just treat them that way. You know, they're special. We want them to be be lifted up and do great things and be able to go to the top of their uh, capabilities. Just as we want all of our kids, you know, any good parent wants their child to outperform them and do better than them, have more money, more success, more better job, whatever better is for that child. We want them to live to the best of the height of their talents. And this is Paul with Timothy. 
Timothy, I, you are, you're my beloved son. I, I'm, I treat you as a son. I am, your, I am your spiritual father is really what he was saying on here. And he's saying, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think this is such an interesting statement. Grace. Unmerited favor. Get everything that you don't deserve. And then he tags onto there, mercy. If you've done anything that God that deserves judgment, I'm praying that you have mercy. And then peace. Now for us, we don't really recognize peace in the same way that a Jewish person would have understand peace. Because in Judaism, they greet each other with the word shalom, which means peace. But when they talk about peace, it's much deeper than just no, no problems. It is spiritual peace, physical peace. And it has a very deep statement. So when, when our Jewish writers in the New Testament were talking about peace, they meant so much more than what we think. Uh, the Greek word is quite powerful anyway because it means the, the tranquil state of mind for one who has nothing to worry about of their spiritual state because they know who they are. And he says, his grace, mercy, and peace is from God the Father and, and Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is what we really want to understand as Christians especially. Our grace, mercy, and peace comes from God and Jesus. Not through anything we do, not through our own works, not through our own activities. We don't earn it. It is from God. The more we recognize where all of this comes from, the better off we are. Because we sit there and try to figure out, well, how can I earn God's mercy and, and God's grace? How can I make peace happen? And when we get into that mindset, then we get bound up by legalism and works and rules, and then try to bind others in those same works and rules and legalism. And it's all from God and Jesus. And the more we recognize where it comes to us, the more we should be able to give to others. And this is the beauty of this whole process. Am I going to just give mercy and peace to others? Am I going to accept it? I have met so many people who cannot accept grace and mercy given to them. It bothers them for whatever reason because they are bound up by law and legalism. And then when, when they find that grace is given to them, they're going, well, I don't deserve it. Well, of course you don't deserve it. It wouldn't be grace if you deserved it. And you're going to get grace. And matter of fact, you're going to get mercy. You're not getting what you deserve. And this is the beauty of this statement. It is much deeper than we even recognize when Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace to you, Timothy. You know, and I love this. I love this statement that he's making to him. And then he goes in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve from the forefathers with pure conscience. And here Paul is saying, first off, he thanks God. He's holding grace toward him. Whom I serve from my forefathers. Paul had been somebody who served God. Now he got kind of sidetracked when the Christians started coming, coming involved and he saw them as the enemy. But even when he was doing the persecution of the Christians, from his perspective, he was doing it in a pure heart. He was defending God and the faith. Now he was wrong-headed and going the wrong direction. But he says, I have served God. And I, I was a Pharisee and I was serving God. I wanted to do what God wanted done. I have served him from the beginning. From the beginning. And with a pure conscience in his whole state even though he was convicted after he got saved that what he was doing was wrong while he was doing it he thought he was serving God he thought he was doing you know keeping Judaism pure of this radical crazy man and his teaching and these guys that are coming around talking about the laws and all is has been fulfilled and 
and the way to heaven is through Jesus Christ and not through the keeping of the good works and offering sacrifices, he was bothered by that. To him, it was heresy. And this is one of the things that I try to be very careful about myself as I look at all the new things going on in the churches that to me look like heresy, that look like they are not godly. And I have to be very careful to look at them and say, is it truly not godly? Is it truly a heresy or do I just not like what they're doing? All right. And there are lots of things that I think that are bordering right on heresy, but I'm not sure yet whether they're in that point, that statement or not. You know, and I've seen many things that bother me in churches that are going on. I've seen churches that look like rock concerts. And then in a word of God that isn't the word of God hardly at all. And I'm going, God, this looks like heresy to me. And yet people get saved. And it's like, God, I don't understand. It's definitely not for me. I've seen every, certain situations where I'm going, God, I, this just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem like you, but people get saved. Who am I to judge what they're doing? Now, if it was in our church, no, we couldn't do it because I consider it, you know, looking at heresy. But if people are getting saved, and I mean truly getting saved, then I have to consider that something is right with what they're doing. Maybe it's not perfect. Maybe it's not even the best. But I have to be able to say, God, it's between you and them, not, not me. My job is not to judge other churches. My job is not to judge other pastors. My job is to run this church the way I think God wants it to be run. And this is why it's so important for us to learn to not judge others. And it gets hard sometimes because I look at those and go, why would that pastor ever do such a thing? And I know some pastors that I totally disagree with the way they run their church, but they, they can tell me why they run their church the way they do, and people are getting saved, so praise God. People are growing great. And this is important. As long as people truly are getting saved and growing, then whatever they're doing is good and covered under the grace of God and the liberty of God. And this is something that is very important for us to understand. You know, many years ago, or decades ago, in, in uh, Christianity in America, there was hellfire and brimstone being preached all the time and yelling. You could not be preaching unless you were yelling and scaring people and keeping them awake. I'm going, okay, I don't know that this is the best way to preach. It's not our style in today's world. But it was during that period of time. And almost everybody did it. God goes with the times as well. God doesn't change. His message doesn't change. The delivery of his message changes. And we need to be very careful about how we look at those things. And, you know, there are certain things that I look around and go, God, I'm not sure I'm happy with some of what's going on. But, again, not my churches to deal with. And all I can do is do what I believe is right. And when I get to heaven, God could either give me praise for standing, standing and holding my guns or say, what was wrong with you? You didn't grow with everybody else. And I don't know what he's going to do. I'm going to only, I can only do what I feel I've got to do. But the one thing I do know is the preaching of the word of God has to be for, forefront of everything that's done. And this is what he's you know, saying. I've served God that without ceasing, I have remembrance of you in my prayers day and night. Timothy was very special to Paul. He has traveled with Paul through his, through his travels. He's been with Paul. He is, the, he is one, Timothy and Titus were the ones that, when Paul needed somebody to go to a troubled church, he sent them along with others. But they were his right-hand men. And he says, I need you to go to this church. Here's the problems that they are dealing with, and here's, here's what you're going to be dealing with when you get there. And he would send them. They were very important to him. They'd finish, finish the work in that church and join him. Sometimes that would be six months. Sometimes it would be a year or two that they were out serving someplace to fix things up.
And this is his greeting with Paul, with uh, Timothy. And then in verse 4, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. So here we see a little bit of selfishness on Paul's case. I greatly, with great desire is what that really means. I greatly desire to see you. All right, so he's saying, I just want to see you. Mine just says greatly, not I. Well, greatly is what it means in, okay. Greatly desire uh, and long, longing uh, to see you. And then this is something interesting that we are not quite sure exactly, being mindful of your tears, thy tears, your tears. Why would he have been having these tears? It could very well be possible that the previous time that he had sent Timothy away, Timothy's going, no, I don't want to leave you. You know, you're, I may never see you again. You know, because he's in, in captivity. He's, in, he's under the sentence of death. And it could very well be that when he was sent away, he was leaving thinking, this is the last time I am going to see my spiritual father, Paul. And probably would have had tears and Paul saying, you've got to go. And then he's saying, I, I, need, I need you back. I really need you back. And I do remember your tears and what you were going through. And then he says that I might be filled with joy. So this whole verse is one that is all about the, the selfishness of Paul on this one. Timothy, I need you back here so that I can be filled with joy. And the word for filled here is pleroma, which means to be filled to the top, overflowing with joy. And so we see this desperation. We're going to see this all through the book, this desperation of him that I am very lonely right now, that I really need the comfort of a friend. And this is something that is very true of all people, every once in a while we need a friend to pull, come alongside of us. And also, this is true of many pastors. Many pastors are very lonely, you know, because they're supposed to be the spiritual leader and everybody feels like they're on pins and needles when their pastor's around because you know, can't do anything wrong. Uh, there was a line in one of the movies that I, that I watched, a Christian movie, Mom's Night Out, where they invited the pastor's wife, and she looked at them and said, this was the first time anybody had invited her out in five years you know, just to be with the girls. Not to be the leader, not to be teaching or something, but just to go do something. And you know, the sad thing about it is that is what happens to pastors and their pastor's wives. They kind of get isolated, like, well, I can't take, I can't go out to the ball game with pastor because I want, I might lose my temper and, and start yelling at the umpire. Well, unfortunately, the pastor is probably going to lose his temper and lose, start yelling at the umpire as well. But people are afraid to hang out with the pastor or the pastor's wives or sometimes a deacon or anything. And Paul is saying, I'm lonely. And it's not uncommon for pastors to be lonely and pastor's wives to be lonely. And this is what he's saying. I need you here. I need you to be with me. And we're going to find out as we go through this letter, not only does he want him for that purpose, but that everybody has abandoned him. And more than once he's going to say, everybody has left. They don't want to be associated with somebody who's going to die at any moment. It does, he says everybody. So I don't know if Luke has left him or he's just being a little dramatic. Um, and it's quite possible that once he went into the prison that he was not allowed any access to anybody. Uh, which, uh, so that's part of what's going on too. When he was at his home arrest, he had people coming and going and, and have Bible studies and, and study time and prayer. And, and, but here he is now under a very close arrest and it seems apparent from what he says in Second Timothy that this is going to be the day, you know. And this is why they date this letter somewhere around 66, 67 A.D. because we know that Paul died in 67, 68. 
So we're looking at this letter was written right before he died. It's probably the last letter that he wrote, at least the last one that made it into scripture. And so we see this, he goes, that I may be full with joy. And then he gives this little statement that tells us about the life of Timothy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in you, and this is the sincere, unadulterated faith. He says, Timothy, you have a real faith in God. I, wouldn't that be the greatest statement for anybody to be able to tell, say to you? You have a sincere, unadulterated faith in God. And he says, that is with you which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. So this is something that has been generational. Okay, Lois was very spiritual and godly. She trained Eunice to be very spiritual and godly. And then they trained Timothy to be spiritual and godly. And I love this. My goal for my kids has been to train them to be spiritual and godly. My goal for my grandchildren is going to be the same thing. Do the best I can to train them to be spiritual and godly. Now, one of them I know is going to have an easy time because he lives with his dad and his mom, who are both Christians, and he lives with them full time. My two uh, step-grandchildren I have a little more problem with. I know that their mom, and, which is my daughter, and their father will teach them to be godly. I'm not so absolutely sure on the other side when they're not with them. But my goal is to help them to be following God. You know, for each of my grandchildren, I have bought magazines to help them be given godly wisdom and godly content for the various ages that they are. You know, to be able to minister and, and give them examples and hopefully plant seeds. Because I want them to have this kind of testimony. You know, you, you have a great spiritual uh, position that was in your father and mother and in your grandfather and, and your grandmother. This is to me something that's very important. What is the legacy that we leave behind? You know, and we know that God does not have any grandchildren. They all have to make their own decisions, but we plant the seeds into those children. And then we plant the seeds into our grandchildren and maybe someday be able to plant the seeds into our great-grandchildren and be able to see them follow God and see them seek God. Now, it's not easy. Everybody can have a prodigal, prodigal in their family, even if you set the best example. And this is something that's very important. We cannot, all we can do as a parent is train up our child to follow God. And if we didn't do a good job when we were younger, then we'd turn around and we'd do the good, as good a job as we can when they're older. A little bit harder, but we still do the, the, the planting of the seeds and the direction and encouragement. And it gets much harder if we didn't do a good job because they look at us and say, well, you didn't believe that when you were, you know, my age. You know, and we can have that happen to us. Well, you, you weren't a good person. You did this. You did that. It gets irrelevant what I did because I was sinning, and I don't want to see you make the same mistakes. And it's very important. But in this case, Timothy had godly parent and a godly grandmother. And Paul says, I read... I love this about you. You've been well-trained. And then he says, not only in them, but I am persuaded that in you also, you have the same thing your mother and your grandmother have, that perfect, beautiful faith in God. And this is one thing that is so important is, what is it that we are giving our children? It is a great, powerful testimony that we have when we live for God in a family, when we live in God before people. Now, in my case, when I got saved, I got saved before anybody else in my family and then watched others in my family get saved because God changed me. 
Was, it a, was I the greatest witness in the world? No, I didn't know a whole lot. When you're talking to mom and dad, you don't know a whole lot as a, as a, as a 10-year-old, as a 12-year-old. But my dad's, part of my dad's testimony was he saw the changes that happened in my life. He, found, he saw something real. And then he had a friend at work who showed him a real Christian as well. And then he got saved. And at that point, it was great because now I could go to church more than Sunday morning. And I could go to church when I wanted to go to church, which was, which was all the time. But we need to live a life that is an example. Is it a perfect example? No, I guarantee I was not a perfect example of a, of a Christian during those years. But my life had changed enough. I was listening to this person give a testimony and, and she said that her family looked at her and they saw that she acted different. And then they, she said that they also said she looked different. How many of, of us really know what that means? I think it's important because when we're saved, there's a peace that comes upon us. There's a joy that comes upon us. And that joy and that peace should show to people. And I've seen people you just, and we all know it, there's certain people you just know that they're saved because of the, the peaceful, contented appearance. Not that they're always con joyful and, and content, but people look at you and they just know that something is weird about you. And that's how they would put it from the world's point of view. This person's weird. They don't seem to ever be, be down. They don't seem to be having trouble. They always seem to be joyful. Nobody can be that joyful who's not on good, strong drugs. <laughs> and that's the way the world looks at us. And we need to be able to say, this is what I have. I have the God of the universe living in me to give me this peace, give me this joy, that I trust in him because he's in control. And this is why it's important to be able to have, going right back to this, the promises of God. Getting into his word and knowing what he says about us. Knowing that my salvation isn't what I think and what I want or how I feel for that day. I'd be in trouble if I had to feel saved every day. Now, I hold on to the promise that I am saved every day. But there's days that if I was going by my feelings, I'd be going, oh no, I'm lost. I'm going to hell because I don't feel saved today. And right now, with all the struggles I'm going through with the family and the sicknesses and everything, it's, it's struggle sometimes to feel happy. And I am glad that my salvation isn't hinged on feeling happy, feeling joy, feeling anything. My salvation is hinged on God saying, I have come inside you because I said I was coming inside you. And he's there. And that gives me the comfort that then actually usually then comes back out is start feeling because I'm going, okay, God, I am what you say. I am whether I feel it or not. I am what you say. And then the joy comes back because I am trusting in the promise, not in the feelings. And this is all very important because knowing his word, knowing what he says gives me strength because Satan comes along all the time and tells me, you are a miserable, terrible wretch. Look at all the stuff you've been doing lately. And you know what? The sad thing is, it's usually true. When he's coming and saying that, I am been a miserable, terrible wretch. And if I'm basing it on my feelings and on what I'm doing, I'm going to go agree with him. Yeah, I'm terrible and I'll get into despair. When I'm looking at the word of God, I can say, you know what? You're right. I am a terrible, miserable wretch, but I'm covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and I'm going to heaven. That needs to be our answer when Satan attacks us and tells us we're worthless. We can agree with him. Yes, you know what? I am worthless, but this is what God says about me. I am a blood-bought, redeemed son, of, son or daughter of God, and I am going to heaven because of what he did, not because of what I have done. It is because of his grace that I get, get anything, not because of what I do. So we can just look at Satan and say, you know, Keep talking, but I don't buy anything you say because I'm going to accept the truth that God gives me. And you know, the problem that we have with truth is we look by sight at what's going on around us and we take sight 
what we see and accept it as being true rather than believing the truth of God. And we need to understand that God doesn't see things the way we do. He sees things as he says they are. And he is truth. So when he says that we're perfect in, in Christ Jesus, then we need to be saying, I am perfect in Christ Jesus in spite of the fact that I'm not perfect. In spite of my flesh doing crazy things and not obeying God, I am still perfect in the sight of Jesus because I have accepted him and he's put the righteousness of Christ on me. This is truth. And we need to really understand truth in spite of what we think we see. And this is many times why I tell people, when I think things are bad going on around me, I have to understand that they're not because God is in control. All right? Things seem bad. Things seem good. But what does God say? What is God's perspective on it? When, it comes, when, it, when I look around, and we've all been there, when things seem bad, we get past the bad, and we realize that it wasn't that bad, and it was pretty good in the end. How many times have we followed something that looks good, looks great, and then find out it was the worst decision we probably could have ever made because we were walking by sight and not praying? David, walking by sight, went into the temple and said, I'm on a mission for Saul. Give me food. He lied to the priest. And the consequence of that lie all the priests were killed on that, on that, at that uh, temple, that, that sanctuary. Because David lied, they were killed. He did what looked good in his own eyes. He wasn't hurting anybody. He was just getting some food from the priest by lying. And it's sad that they died when David should have died. We need to be very careful about walking in our own way of looking at things. We need to be praying for direction from God rather than walking in our own ways. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path is so important. Because it gets real easy and I am guilty of that. I'm a manager. I like to jump on things real quick. Which is great when you're managing a business. It's not so great when you're trying to run your life. And you're going, this really looks like a great idea. I'm doing it without praying, without considering what God wants. And then you get down two or three months later and go, why did I ever do that activity? Why did I do that? And you sit back and go, God, I am really such a fool. I trusted in my own way, and now I'm paying a consequence. And sometimes those consequences aren't really bad. Sometimes they're huge. But walking by our own understanding will get us into trouble. David, for the most part, David was good. He went and sought God before he did just about anything. But we have all kinds of examples of David doing what looked right in his own eyes and having a consequence that came his way. And we see this all through the scriptures jumping at what looks good and then realizing that there's a consequence behind it. And if we just learn to trust God, it's going to be better. Verse 6, Wherefore I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God which, was, which is in you by the putting on of my hands. So here he's saying, remember the gift. Of God. Now, Paul recognized the gift of, of Timothy, and it said he laid his hands on him. And this happens in the churches a lot. When people are delegated to do a job, the church will gather around them and lay their hands on them and give them great blessing for their, what they're doing. And I think it's an important step when people are called and you see the gifting that they have and you say, we're giving you this. We're, we're acknowledging the gift that God has given you. And Paul said, remember. Remember your gift. I, when we read this, we get this sense that Paul has a concern for Timothy at this point. Is his, what is his concern? We don't know completely. But he seems to be thinking that Timothy 
is slipping away from his call. And he's saying, Timothy, remember. Remember that you have a calling on you to be a pastor. Remember that you have this calling that was placed upon you and do not forget it. And this is what happens, and it's really sad that in the Christian church, the average time a pastor will spend in a church is five to seven years. And then they realize that either they've run out of things to say, they've made people mad at enough people mad at them that nobody wants them, or they just look around and say, I am not getting the, what I think should be, be going on. And they either get chased out of the church or they leave the church to go someplace else. To me, that's sad. Is God calling them away after five to seven years? I don't think so. You know, I praise God. I know God called me to this church. And until God clearly calls me away from this church, I plan to be here. And so far, I've only been here nine years. I have beat the, I have beat the odds. Uh, but I've watched all around the association. I used to be, nine years ago, the junior pastor of all the pastors. Now I'm one of the longest-termed pastors in the association, and that's kind of scary. There are some ones that have been around a long time, some that are probably going to retire at their church. But there's so many of the churches that have a revolving door in them that people just go and go and go and then leave. And I don't know why that is. I don't know what it is. But Paul is going to Timothy, remember your calling. Remember that you are called to be a pastor. And it was confirmed by me and the church. And you were prayed on with the laying on of hands. And do not give up. Do not give up on your calling. And this is beautiful because when you know your call, it really doesn't matter what comes your way. If you know that you are called and you remember your calling, then you can be able to stay strong because no matter what comes your way, you're going, God, you called me and I'm going to stick to this. Now, in the middle of all those trials and hardships, you start wondering, God, did you really call me? And this is where Paul's saying, Timothy, remember, do not forget your call and this is very important for him and then in verse 7 for God hath not given us a spirit the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind fear does not come from God now the fear of God the reverence and the honor of God is what we're called to do but we do not have a spirit of fear we are not to be afraid of anything. Why? Because God is in charge. You know, and this is something I am very, very sure of. I have read all 30 or 3,000 plus verses on the word fear in the Bible. And they basically break down to three groups, and I've shared this many times, and they're almost equal. A third of them is just a statement that people were afraid. Nothing good, nothing bad, just a statement that these people were afraid. Another third of them is fear not. One third of the time, almost, I think it was 900 and plus verses, fear not. And then the other third are fear God. The only thing we are to fear is God. And that isn't terror and terror of God, that is to be in reverential awe for God. If we have reverential awe of what's going, what's going on around us, what are we doing? We're raising them to God and above. We are worshiping the activity that's going on around us rather than God. It's idolatry. When I say, well, this, I'm afraid of this person because what happened to God? Isn't God in charge? If he's going to allow something to happen to me, then it was his will for it to happen. And I cannot be fearing what's going to happen because it is God who's allowing it to happen. And it becomes very important. 
what am I fearing? Am I fearing? Now, I know every time I talk about this, people go, well, you know what? I'm just human. I fear. I understand. Fear is an emotion. But our emotions need to be kept under truth. But should I fear the bad choice or just make good choices? Well, we can make bad choices. <laughs> but I don't fear that I'm going to make bad choices. I'm, my, my fear is on God and I'm reverencing God. That number one is going to get rid of my bad choices. My bad choices are usually when I decide to listen to myself and not honor God and put him in his place. Believe me, I understand, because when I'm making bad decisions, I can directly relate it to the fact of what was my relationship with God. The closer I am with God, the more I'm focused on God, the less bad choices I make because everything is focused on Him. The more I draw close to Him, the better my decisions get because I am now focused on Him. When I drift back away from Him, then I'm going to make more and more bad choices and suffer the consequences of those bad choices but I, either way, I still don't fear the bad choice. I don't fear the consequence. Even though I deserve it, I fear God. Now, I understand. I Believe me, I, I'm not saying I don't have fear. Yeah. I'm just saying I should not have fear. Yeah, no, no it was just uh, how, how do we not have fear when we make the bad choices? We just accept that it, it is what God has given us, and it's his word, and it's his truth. We're not going to lose our salvation. We may lose some. We may may lose some rewards, but the good news is God says all things work together for good. I love that verse because all things, and I said that this morning, when I do what God wants, it's going to work out for good. When I totally mess up my life and do and do everything wrong, God still is going to make good from it. Was it his best plan? Not necessarily, but he's going to say, I am going to turn this for good. So do I fear when I do something wrong? No. Am I going to repent? Obviously, I better repent. Am I going to turn away and am I going to confess it? Absolutely. Am I going to then look, okay, God, now I've got consequences. I'm going to just live with these consequences. Help me get through the strength to get through them. But the fear must always be on God. And yes, I understand, we are human beings, we tend to fear, we, we, we reject the truth, we live by our emotions rather than by truth. But the more we know the truth, the less we're going to live by our emotions. And then when my emotions start acting up, I'm going, God, this is what you say, I want to depend on what you say. But your emotions can really mess you up. If you allow them to get in there and mess you up, they can really, really mess you up. But again, the question is, am I going to live in my emotions and where, where they're at? Or am I going to live by the truth of God? Yeah, I've kind of been doing like things like when I do bad things, I still realize that I'm still God's child, I guess. Yep. And don't keep beating myself up because I was bad at that certain time. Yeah. And then I'm going to have some consequences because of it, but God is still in charge. And again, so when I go, so when I get into the truth, it really doesn't matter that I have done these things. And yes, it, it matters in the long scope. There will be some loss of reward and, and some discipline in my life. But it still doesn't matter in the long run. Because God is going to turn whatever I do to some good. Now that good may be for people, and believe me, it can be as simple as you messed up your, your testimony before somebody and then you confessed what you did and all of a sudden that person goes, oh, you follow a God that will forgive you? And that makes an impression on him. My dad got saved because the guy that he was looking at that he thought was such a wonderful Christian did something really stupid and then actually told him, I'm sorry, I was a bad, bad example of a Christian to you. And it just blew my dad away. Because that was not what he was used to seeing from a Christian. Now, now, was it God's plan for this man to do something really stupid and blow his testimony? Probably not. Did God use it for something good? Absolutely, just as he promises us. 
So what we need to understand is no matter what comes our way, God can use it. And because he knew that we were going to do it anyway. Yeah, and this is the amazing thing. He has a plan for our life that we're not going to follow. And then he has an alternate plan that when we mess up his plan, he has a plan that's already taken that mess up into a, to account to use in a mighty way. I can't even fathom what God does and how he knows all this stuff. And how many plans, you know, he is the only one in the universe that knows what would have happened if we had been obedient. We can only think we know what would happen if we were obedient. But I can tell you one thing, if we had been obedient every step, life would be a whole lot better than it is. You know, a whole lot better than it is currently. But we cannot go back and wish that we had done things differently either. And this is the hard thing. There, all of us hit certain stages in our life where we're going, what if I had done something different? You know, I had that problem when, when I turned uh, 40 years old, uh, 44 years old, because I had made a decision at 18 that would have been a totally different path. And uh, I would have been retiring from the military as an officer. And it was kind of like, wow, if I had only done this, my life would have been totally different. Yeah, my life would have been so different. I wouldn't have met Lynn. I wouldn't have had my four kids. I you know, wouldn't have gone to Bible school. There would have been a lot of differences. And you know, it took a long time. It, you know, but there are places where we question, did I make right decisions? Could I have made better decisions? And the only one who knows whether that was true or not will be God himself. And once they're made, they're irrelevant to us. So we really shouldn't be looking at it that way anyway, but we are human. We are human and go, there were some really big changes. Now I know that there are turning points in my life that made a lot of messes that I'm still paying for in some ways. And if I had just made some better decisions at certain turning points in my life, my life would have been different and I know it. But I still can't go back and dwell on what would have been. Because number one, I don't know what would have been. I know that I know the consequences for what I did, but I don't know where it would have led otherwise. Might be very, might have been worse in the long run. Uh, but we need to really understand that God is in there. He, he is not giving us a spirit of fear. All right? We are not to fear. And Paul goes on, but he's given you, uh, given you a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. God gives us power. If we will just tap into the power of God and the Holy Spirit, we have power to accomplish anything. The other one is love. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. When I meet people who say they're Christians and they have no love for people, no love for other Christians, I have to be going, are you truly a believer? Now, maybe you're just a believer who stayed in an infant stage and you have not grown at all. You know, you've been a Christian for, you know, five decades and you still have no love. I have a lot of trouble with that. Now, I understand that love is going to be expressed differently and at different levels for people. But we need to be able to show love one for another. And love is one of those things that is very much part of a Christian. God indwells us. And love should be going out and being able to impact people. And I have met several people over the years that say they're Christians and, and they don't show any love for anybody that I can, that I can see. Now, I'm not saying they don't love somebody, but you know, they're backbiting and attacking and tearing people down. And it's like, where is the love of God in you? And this is power and love. And then I love this. A sound mind. You know, this is so important because the world does not have sound mind. Worldly wisdom does not lead to soundness. I went to school, you know, and you take a philosophy class. Philosophy classes are some of the dumbest classes you could ever take. Because they will tell you, how do you know that, you know that, how do you know that you're real? 
How do you know that anything's real? You know, and they go, well, what you see is not real. It's a figment of your imagination. You can't be sure that, I, that you're being talked to right now. And it's like, okay, what is wrong with you? And most of religion is that way, that it's not godly. You know, just believe that you can be. You know, and we need to be understanding that God gives us a sound mind. He comes into us and he gives us soundness. We have a understanding of truth. We have an understanding of righteousness. We end up learning to know truth. And the world is bombarded by lies of Satan. And people buy into these lies all the time. And this is hard for people to understand. But when you're bought into the lies, there is no soundness of mind. We live in a world right now that says there is no absolute truth. Now, I love the fact that they give an absolute statement to say that there is no absolute truth. Because by their very statement, there is no such thing as an, no absolute truth, because that's an absolute statement. It's, an, it's absolutely true that there is no absolute truth, is what they tell us. And it's like, and I've actually called them on that. I'm going, are you absolutely sure? Are you absolutely sure that there is absolutely no truth? You know, uh, but this is the unsoundness of the mind that is not focused on God. This is where they can hold two diametrically opposed views about things and, and believe both of them to be true. They are not of sound mind. None of them can make a will because they are not of sound mind. You know, and so this is, God has given us the spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Christians have a sound mind when they are focused on God. And this is very important for us to understand, and this is what Paul is telling Timothy, you have these things. You have power, love, and a sound mind. And this is great news for us. Where are we with God? Do we have sound minds? I love being able to focus on God and be able to win most arguments, at least in my mind, because I can lay, the, I can lay where they're contradicting to themselves because I go to work God's word. I trust God's word, and there aren't any contradictions in God's word. To, so there is no lack of sound mind when I'm focused on his word. But it is fun to talk to people that are following the world's way because they have no soundness of mind. They oftentimes believe contradictory beliefs. You talk to an evolutionist and they will absolutely tell you that life does not spontaneously generate unless you are at the beginning of the beginning of creation and you have nothing but rocks and water and you need and you need life to spontaneously generate from that pond of pond of chemicals. But life does not spontaneously generate except in the most important time, right at the beginning. You know, but they'll believe both of those without even thinking about it. They never analyze what they believe. And it's so funny to be able to look at what they believe and help them understand the problems in what they believe. But we have a sound mind, and we are to have a sound mind rooted in truth. Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. We ask you to go with us. Help us to have sound minds, love, and the spirit of power evident in our life. And we just thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. 
Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.